Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is nothing but parables. This is based on a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 13, 34, or that the narrative makes in Matthew 13, 34, that Jesus spoke entirely in parables to the people. So how entirely was entirely? Just like what he said, or does that extend to other parts of Scripture? If you were going to send a message, you know, there's often times in our lives when we want to send a message to one person and not have other people overhear it necessarily, or, some, or you need to communicate in code. Don't couples sort of get little ways to indicate to each other when they're tired of a party, you know, or something like that <laughs> without having to say out loud what's going, you know to send a message to someone else that they will get, but that others won't necessarily get. And uh, if you were communicating in any kind of a coded message to someone, wouldn't you leave some kind of a hint that, oh, by the way, this is code, you know, put your decoder on when, when, you're, when you're looking at this. There's been this uh, history of biblical literalism of, of taking the Bible at face value, not that it doesn't contain allegory and so on, but thinking that if you can't see an obvious allegory in it, then it's to be taken at face value. And so things like the age of people in the Old Testament, the creation story, the miracles in the New Testament, and uh, you know the flood and various other things are taken to be literal events because there's no indication in the text that we should read them any other way. Well, I think there is an indication that we should read them a different way. And we'll be looking at some of those passages tonight. Uh, so, if you'd care to join me to, for an opening prayer, good friends. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord for your presence among us. We open the pages of your word, seeking your mind and heart, Lord. We thank you for the word that you've given to us, and please be with us as we try to understand it. Amen. Sending love to those of you who are out there online and on the phone and getting the audio. And um, uh, I just need to switch one thing on the audio here. Sorry if this creates a pop. There we go. Are we okay? Test, test. Yeah, okay, good. That's a little better. My mic was a little hot. Um, so, uh, how would you define a parable? What would a parable be? It comes from a Greek word that simply means something put alongside something else. Para means alongside, and bole is like just put it. So it's two things that are put side by side. That's what a parable is. So it's interesting that it would say that every, every single thing that Jesus said was a parable. The word parable in Scripture is used of several different kinds of things. It's used of just special sayings, uh, but it seems to be mainly used for like, like things like Proverbs and so on, but it mainly seems to, be, seems to be used of a story, and we usually, as far as we can tell, figure it's a made-up story uh, that is of an earthly nature that tells us something about spiritual reality. Yeah, it has some spiritual point. And I don't think the made-up part is the most important thing, because at least in Scripture, the, it never, Jesus never says, I'm going to make up a story right now. You know, he just says there was a, you know, a landowner who, who did this and that, launches right into the, the parable. And... Um, so the key point to me is that it would be an earthly story that has something spiritual within it. Last week, we talked about a strange love letter and why Scripture might be written. If it is a love letter, why isn't it more direct? And I want to continue that theme tonight. Uh, so the first thing I want to read is just some stories about parables. Let's begin in Matthew 13 because that's a great place to start. In fact, we'll read at some length here because Matthew 13, if you happen to know this, is just a, 
string of parables. So let's start at the beginning of Matthew 13 there. Wrong page. Matthew 13. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Okay, so he's speaking to a great multitude. And what does he say? Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Hmm. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then he ends with this tagline. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yeah, and so the disciples picked this right up. What do they say in verse 10? The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Okay, so this is crucial for what we're talking about tonight. Here, here's the you know, $20 million question. Why do you speak to the people? He's, there's this whole multitude... So the disciples come to him and ask him, why are you speaking to them in parables? And listen to his answer. This is very important. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Oh, weird. So this is one of those things I was talking about at the beginning where he's trying to communicate in different ways to two different sets of people with the same words. There's one group that's going to find out what's going on, and there's another group that's kind of clueless about what's, what's going on. Go on. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. Mm. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Yes, how horrible that would be if they accidentally got healed. Uh, I didn't understand this passage for the longest time, uh, but eventually reading Swedenborg sort of persuaded me that what he's saying is that actually there's a danger to coming into a certain kind of understanding. If you only sort of get halfway into it and you don't really buy it, but you're sort of half convinced and then you reject it, that's worse than just not buying it in the first place. And what it means is that if you really had the whole thought unpacked there, it would say, unless they turn and I healed them, and then they backslid later and committed profanation. You know, mm -hmm. that, that would be bad. So it's better to just have uh, hearing and not understanding and seeing and not perceiving, which itself is kind of a little parable, isn't it? The, uh, the relationship between seeing and understanding and, hear, you know, uh, different things. Go on. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And then what word does he lead verse 18 with? Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Yes, hear, hear, hear the parable of the sower. And what does he say to them? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. And something I've pointed out in this Bible study before is that uh, the, the way Swedenborg interprets Scripture 
a lot of Scripture is about itself. And here's an interesting story where the Lord just says something about a sower and he goes out to sow and various different things happen. But then when he's explaining it to his disciples, oh, it turns out to be all about the Word. Interesting. And at the very moment that Jesus is talking, he is delivering the Word. He's doing the thing that the parable talks about. You know, it's sort of self-referential, which is cool. Uh, Go on. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Uh Uh-oh. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful Mm. but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold some 60 some 30. okay so he kindly gives the disciples an explanation and then what does he say another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then he tells this parable of the wheat and the tares. Let them both grow up to the harvest and so on. And then 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Okay, in verse 33. Another parable he oh. spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Okay, so all of these, he didn't say anything at the beginning of the parable of the sower. But the other three were all about the kingdom of heaven, weren't they? Kingdom of heaven is like this. Kingdom of heaven is like that. Kingdom of heaven is like the other thing. And they're things that seem, on the face of it, quite unlike each other, except that they have growth in common. Uh, And then here's our sort of smoking gun verse in in, uh, 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them. That's where I get the title, Nothing But Parables. Without a, without a parable, he didn't speak to them. Hmm. It says he spoke everything to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he didn't speak. And why did he do that? It explains it again. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Okay, so remember that little statement. It was a, there's a quote from, uh, from the Old Testament that uh, I will utter things that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. I'll open my mouth in parables. That's why he did it, was to fulfill this Old Testament scripture. And then, go on. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Yeah, could we go back three parables? I'm still stuck on on the three parables ago. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And note, as I'm sure you did, good friends, that they are no longer out there with the whole multitude. This is just him and the disciples in a house. And he explained before, oh, these parables, you know, I have to be careful with the way that I communicate with the crowds, but I'm happy to tell you, you know, some indication of what it means. And so he goes and explains about who the good seed are and the bad seed, what the end of the time and all that kind of stuff. And uh, at the end of verse 43, how does he cap off that little explanation? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yes. So that's his explanation. And then does he take a breath? As far as we know from the text, he does not. Right. And what does he say? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, this is kind of fun. <laughs> I, I want to draw an analogy here. Like, in other words, he's in the midst of explaining a parable and launches into another parable. <laughs> and what it reminds me of, uh, some of you may be familiar with Swedenborg's work titled Apocalypse Revealed or Revelation Unveiled, where... 
he explains the book of Revelation. Here's the book of Revelation, full of mysterious imagery and, and prophecies and strange predictions, scary stuff, and, and uh, it has been baffling to everybody forever. And Swedenborg explains it verse by verse. Here's what it all means. And at the end of chap every chapter, he gives a new story with new bizarre imagery that he does not explain. It's like the Lord just adding a parable right on top of an explanation of a parable. That's what Swedenborg did too. Here, I'll explain the book of Revelation. And by the way, here's some more strange stories just to entertain you just so we don't run out. Okay. And so he says, uh, go on. Um, Verse 44. Thank you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, I think that's parable number five. <laughs> Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, I think that's number six. Go on. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full... They drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Well, it's seeming to me at this point that he's piling more parables on on the disciple, like, and he's not explaining. Just here, have another one. Have another one. Here, would you like to have another one? And it gives him more parables. Okay, go on. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Okay, those last little couple of verses are an explanation of what some of these parables mean. It's pretty brief, and it ends by saying there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth, which itself is a parable, isn't it? Uh, he, he's still in parable mode. And then I love verse 51. This is just beautiful, classic. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? Yeah. I just gave you seven parables in a row. How are we doing, gang? And what do they boldly say? They said to him, yes, Lord. Yes. <laughs> Got it. You know? Good. They have very deep, amazing understanding. Okay. So then he added something else. What did he say in verse 52? Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Well, thanks a lot. So you told me seven parables. Then you said, did you understand all this? And so we said, yes. So you gave us this other bizarre statement, uh, uh, you know, about a specific aspect of somebody in the kingdom of heavens. And then what does it say in verse 53? Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. Yes, he finished all those parables. Uh, and interestingly, he went to his own country and could not perform miracles there. Look at verse 58, because people didn't believe in him. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Yeah, interesting. So he, does, he tells all these parables and then immediately goes somewhere where he's not very much received and can't do much in the way of miracles. Uh, now... In other Bible studies that we've done in the past, we've, you know, gone way into the parable of the sower, the tares and the wheat, and analyzed it, and torn it apart, put it back together again and everything. It's not my intent to do that tonight, uh, but I did want to read that because isn't that an interesting chapter on the subject of parables? He's telling parables to the crowd. The disciples ask for an explanation. First of all, they say, why are you talking in parables? He says, oh, it's because I need to protect them because if I healed them before they were really ready, that's not going to be good. And then explains the parable to them, then tells another parable and then two more and then goes into a house with them and they ask for an explanation of three parables back. So he gives that, piles on another one, piles on another one, piles on another one, then said, did you understand? They said, yep. And then he said, which I don't believe them for a second. And then, uh, and then he adds something else uh, strange on the, and baffling on the end. So he's really talking to the disciples pretty much 
Okay, he's explaining a little more. At least he said that the sower, the seed is the word. You know, you, you, got, you got some more. It's great stuff. Uh, you can spend a lifetime thinking about what those things mean. Uh, so it cracks me up that they say yes when he asks whether they've understood. Um, I think they have a little too great an estimation of their own uh, interpretive abilities. But they... Um, but the Lord is speaking even to them in parables and piling more parables on after the parables. And, uh, okay, now, if memory serves, it's said back here in verse 35 that the reason he didn't speak except in parables was so that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, I'll open my mouth in parables. Okay? Right. Where does that come from? Oh, it comes from Psalm 78, verse 2. So let's go into the middle of your Bible, see if we can find our way to Psalm 78, verse 2. It expressly says that Jesus was doing what he was doing because it was a fulfillment of what the prophet said. And interestingly, it's not a prophet. It's one of the Psalms. Like there's the Psalms and then the prophets. And it's from a Psalm. But... Fine, that, that's fine. And, okay, uh, look at 78 verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Good, okay, he's going to open his mouth in a parable. Okay, I want to show something to those of you who are getting the video feed. Uh just a simple sort of thing I can describe it for those getting the audio. I've just written Old Testament at the top, and then I've got two divisions within that, historical and prophetical. You can slice and dice it several different ways. Then New Testament, historical, prophetical. Okay, so in the Old Testament, uh, at the most, you know, sort of grand categories here, the historical would be the five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and so on, that give you <coughs> stories. That's why historical, historical has the word story in it. They're narratives. They're uh, supposedly, um, you know, real events that happened with real people like Abraham and Sarah and, and so on. Uh, so you have the historical portion of the Old Testament. Then you get the prophetical uh, which as a general sort of thing would be the um, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and so on, the prophets. Now, lots of people, I think, would think that the prophets are, they, they, they say allegorical things all the time. They even tell stories of, and, and then ex, explain them. And uh, they, they're always about, you are a burning firebrand or... You know, oh, Syria, you are like this. And, you know, the sword of Egypt shall do this and that. It's all in that kind of language. It's sort of poetical language. And some of it is apocalyptic in there as a subcategory. But the historical, not so much. A whole bunch of people left here, camped there, went to a mountain, saw this. God said that. They left. They went over here. They fought someone. It's just straightforward sort of historical material. Then in the New Testament, you get a similar division in a way. You get the historical, which would be the four Gospels and really would include the Acts and Epistles and so on. Uh, again, you can break it down into finer pieces. But then you get the prophetical, especially the book of Revelation, which is quite different. You get a few passages in the, in the Gospels that are like that. But you can kind of break it down there again into the historical and the prophetical. And the prophetical seems more heavily full of allegory, symbolism, you know, whatever you want to call it. So, the historical, not so much. Look what happens here, though, in Psalm 78. I'll open my mouth in a parable. Uses that word, right? I'll utter dark sayings of old. And then if you go down what's going on here, let's read down a little bit. Um... Okay, read verse 13. What do you think that's about? 
He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. Well, wait a second. This is the dark saying. This is the parable. The dark saying of old is the Exodus story in the historical part of the Old Testament. That's called a parable and a dark saying of old. Well, maybe it's just that one verse. Hmm. Go on. And he made the waters stand up like a heap. Yep, Exodus. Uh In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with a light of fire. Oh, okay. That's also in those books of Moses. Uh He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like depths. Yeah, that happened in Exodus and so on. Uh He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Hmm. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. Yeah, and it's got when they asked for meat out there and then the smiting of the rock and, and uh, he commanded the... And then verse 24, he rains down manna on them. This is just simply the thing that we were told was a historical story is described here as a parable and a dark saying of old. The part of the Bible that you think is the least dark saying and parable-ish is being described as a parable. And you get what I'm saying that it says explicitly in Matthew 13 that Jesus was fulfilling this. Psalm 70, it quoted Psalm 78 verse 2 and said this was why he was talking the way he was talking. Wait a minute. That's why he spoke all in parables, because there was a history back there with people who just did things. I don't get how is that a parable. But it seems to be saying, hey, the Old Testament, even the histories of it, are a parable. It goes on and on, all about Egypt and turning the river to blood and all the stuff in the tabernacle and the people go like sheep and the border by the mountain and, you know, everything. Uh, the whole thing, it, go, it keeps going all, all the way through. Um, it's long. It's so long, yeah. And the whole of Psalm 78 is this kind of account of the Old Testament described, ladies and gentlemen, I will now utter parables and dark sayings of old. Exodus, Numbers, you know, Deuteronomy, etc. Very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, something else. And the fact that Jesus was fulfilling it. Why he did what he did was because this prophet who's a psalmist, said, hey, the Old Testament is a parable. Huh. That's, that's more confusing than I thought that was going to be. Let's look at Isaiah. So turn to the right and go to Isaiah. Chapter 4. Let's read the entire chapter, shall we, dear reader? Mm-hmm. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for for those of Israel who have escaped. Mm. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, Hmm. then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies Hmm. a cloud and smoke by day. Oh, really? Hmm. And the shining of a flaming fire by night. Wait, didn't we hear just hear about the fire and the fire? Yep, uh-huh. For over all the glory, there will be a covering. Oh, very important statement. Over all the glory. Hmm. That's why. Over all the glory, there will be a covering. I think that's an Old Testament explanation for why you would have allegorical imagery, just like Jesus saying, oh, there's a protection in it. Over all the glory, there shall be a covering. And look at that last verse there. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Yes, over all the glory, there shall be 
uh, covering. So anyway, I just wanted to load that, load that thought into your minds. We did a whole Bible study about that at one point, about the covering. Okay, and uh, uh, let's look at um, Isaiah 6. Verse, let's pick up at verse 8. This is the call of Isaiah. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Hmm. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. There it is. So that's what the Lord was quoting. He was quoting this right after the call of Isaiah. So it's sort of fun just to think about the fact that Jesus was reading the Old Testament. He was reading the same thing we're reading and seeing that and thinking, oh, yeah, this is... I." This is how I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm reading the Old Testament. That's giving me my marching orders. And uh, I have to be careful in the way that I express myself because these people won't be able to hear what I'm saying. And that's what's going on here. Uh, and that same sort of thing that they might be healed and that would actually turn out to be a bad thing if, it wasn't a, if they weren't ready for it or, or really willing to be on board. Doesn't it say... Oh, uh, wasn't that thing about uh, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow to her wallowing in the mire or something like that? And there's that thing about the house is swept and they leave and then they come back and bring seven spirits worse than themselves. These are all stories about that kind of thing that if you only sort of get halfway on board with something but you're not really there, it can be worse for you than just not bothering in the first place. It talks about that in the epistles as well. Okay, um, I want to go into the New Testament again. Let's go to Matthew, and I want to go to Matthew 21. Mm. Now, here's Jesus again telling parables. He's telling a very specific parable to the chief priests and the elders who are challenging his authority. And he talks about a vineyard and that uh, when the vineyard owner sends the son, they kill the son. And, uh, and he asks them what will they, you know, he asks them sort of like last week we talked about Nathan and David, that uh, Nathan asked what, you know, David responded like, that person should be killed. And then he says, well, that's actually a story about you. The, the Lord does the same thing to the elders and chief priests here. What do they say in verse 41 in, in reaction to this idea that they've killed the heir? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Uh -huh. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here's a parable for you. Go on. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. I don't understand what you're saying. That's pretty direct there, but go on. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And how do the chief priests and Pharisees react? Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Ah, good. You see, sometimes people got it. Like it was a coded message, but they go, oh, ouch. You know, it was actually a negative story about them. And, and they picked it up, but they couldn't do anything about it because they feared the, uh, feared the crowds who, who loved the Lord. Uh, turn to the right and let's go to Mark chapter 4. Just want to read 33 and 34. This is kind of a parallel passage of something we read before, but it says it in a slightly different way. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Ah, you see, able to hear it. Able to hear it. 
So that was a function in the parables is whether they were able to hear it and go on. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Ah, so again, you get this sense that there's two communities to receive this message. There's one group where it's very important that it not necessarily be understood. And then there's another group that's in a different condition that can go ahead and hear the explanation without, you know, risking their eternal lives or something. And uh, turn to the right. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. Another scripture we've been over many times in this Bible study. I love it. And this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And people are saying that some shocking thing happened where this Jesus was killed and nobody saw it coming and completely blindsided them. And he actually chides them in verse 25. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ah, you didn't believe the prophets because they talked about this. Go on. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And listen to what it says. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that says very clearly, the Lord says very clearly that the things in Moses are about himself. You can see more clearly now how it was a fulfillment, like the Lord fulfilled Psalm 78, which is about the Old Testament because that was about the Lord, you know, and he expounded to them, hey, here's what in Moses and all the scriptures, things concerning himself. And then he meets with all the rest of the group or a larger group and verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Okay, all those things, not only the prophetical, but also the historical, is a parable about the Lord. You don't see him in there. It's not obvious. Uh, for, for many years, I felt a little tormented by this because it felt like, wow, the Lord explained it to them and they got to hear it. But when do we get to find out what he said? Uh, but there are ways to figure out what he said. The, um, he wants us all to know these things if it's safe for us to find out. But there are things in Moses and the Psalms and the prophets concerning the Lord. So those things are allegories as well. Specifically, picks out Moses, those five historical works of Moses. Um, let's turn to the right and go to John. And he tells them a parable about the, um, let, let's just read it. 10, start at verse 1. Which chapter? Oh, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, starting at the first verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, <coughs> he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now it's just strange. He just stands up and said this thing about the doorkeeper and their sheep and some know his voice and, you know, tells this whole story. But, and so what do we read in verse 6? Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Yes. In the old King James, this parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they didn't understood not. So, uh, yes, he said that to them. They didn't, it just says directly in the text, they didn't get it. And so, what does he say in verse 7? Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Is that a little clearer? You know, I was just talking about the door and the sheep. and all that's good. Uh, Hello, I, I am the, you know, talking about myself and what I'm doing here. I'm the door of the sheep. Okay, that's helpful. Look at John 16, <laughs> verse 
verse 12, very important verse. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. The disciples now. This is the, this is the in-group. What does he say? I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's right. But when the spirit of truth has come, he'll guide you into all truth. And yet whatever the spirit of truth says to them is also what Jesus wants to say to them. I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And uh, look down at, um, let's, okay. And what, is, what types of things does he talk about in here? It's about how he'll go away and people will be sorrowful but he'll see them again. And uh, look at verse 25 after he says all this. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Yes, in the Old King James Proverbs, figurative language. This is, these are parables, you know, figurative language. Okay. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Okay, that's great. And then he says that he came forth from the Father and came into the world and is leaving the world and going to the Father. Directly labeled as figurative language. And what do they say? How do they react? His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Yes, that's right. When he says... I am directly labeling this thing I'm communicating to you right now is, is, is figurative language. And they say, oh, thank you. That's clear and no, no figure of speech. Thank you. Verse 30. <laughs> okay. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? It's sort of the reverse of that other story where he said, do you understand? And they said, yes, we do. Um, so <laughs> here they say, oh, and they sort of stop him and say, oh, we get it. We get it now. Thank you. Right after he said, I am speaking to you. See, if you were communicating to someone in code, wouldn't you leave little hints that there was a coded message? Well, it's a pretty big hint to say, I am speaking to you in figurative language. You know, and that's when they say, Got it. You're not speaking to us in figurative language. Good. <laughs> and he asked them, do you really believe? Because you're all going to be scattered. Uh, you know, you, you, don't really, you don't really believe as much as you think you do. Okay, let's go to the right and go through Acts and Romans into 1 Corinthians. A couple of cool things in 1 Corinthians here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now this is Paul. And Paul, Paul knew his Old Testament very, 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 very well. He, he was a Pharisee. And, and uh, 1 Corinthians 9 verses 9 and 10. I just love this. For it is written in the law of Moses. Here we go. This is Moses. This is a historical part. Should be straightforward. Should mean what it says. It says what it means. What does he say about it? You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. We all know this principle. Yes, of course. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Is this really... Did the Old Testament really come down to tell us about animal husbandry? Is it really... Is that what we're talking about in the Old Testament? Or... Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Oh, you mean that's some sort of one of those, what do you call those things, like a metaphor or something that's about human beings? It's not about cattle or something? Wow, go on. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Paul is reading an inner layer of meaning in an Old Testament law from the five books of Moses. And he's very straight up about it. Is, really, this is about animals? Come on. It's not about animals. It's about us. And then he explains how different people who are working on things related to the church, oh, this is how this, this goes, you know? It's awesome. So, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6, even more astounding. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers 
were under the cloud. Yes. All passed through the sea. Ah, that's about that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and going through the waters of the Red Sea and all, you know, that he's, he's talking about Exodus again. Here we go. We're talking about this historical. So what's he going to say about it? Go on. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, did Moses talk about baptism? Was he baptizing people? I don't remember any baptism back there, but they call it a baptism that he went through that. Very interesting. Paul does. Go on. All ate the same spiritual food. Oh, interesting. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Well, now, what do you mean, Paul, that they all drank the same spiritual drink? I don't remember a story about them all drinking the same spiritual drink. What story are you talking about, Paul? Well... For they they drank, <laughs> for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Now I don't remember the rock being labeled Christ in the Old Testament story. Ne never said, by the way, this rock is Christ. But Paul feels perfectly comfortable giving an inner meaning of the historical works of Moses and reading Jesus, just like Luke says, you know, that that was Jesus who was the rock that they were getting that spiritual drink from. It was spiritual. It wasn't physical. It was spiritual. Wow. Okay, good. Turn to the right and let's go to Galatians, which comes up right away there handily. Galatians chapter 4. Let's read verses 22 to the end of that chapter. Again, Paul is he's writing to a different group, but it's about the Old Testament. And what does he say here? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. That's right. That's in the five books of Moses. That's back in Genesis. The one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Yeah, that, the bondwoman was Hagar, and then Sarah had, had a child later. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. Oh, they are? The Old Testament is symbolic? Straight up, really, Paul? The Old Testament is symbolic? Hagar and Sarah and their... T I thought it was a straight up story. It just said this one was born and then she got mad and then this happened and that happened. But he's saying, oh no, that was symbolic. In fact, in the uh, wonderful language of the old King James, it says these things are an allegory. And it says it straight up. Okay, go on. For these are the two covenants. They are? I don't remember it saying that Hagar was a covenant and Sarah was a covenant. They were just people. What do you mean? Covenants. Go on. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Oh, Hagar equals Mount Sinai? I don't remember seeing that in the Old Testament. Interesting. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds... All right, to hold it. What was that word? Correspond. Corresponds. Are you kidding me? Paul uses the word correspond? I thought that was New Church copyrighted material. Intellectual property. What do you mean correspond? Okay, go ahead. Well, sorry, I interrupted you. For this Hagar... First time I've ever done that. But. First time. For this, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So Hagar corresponds to Jerusalem. You mean a historical figure in the Old Testament literally is said to correspond... To, to some spiritual thing. Go on. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Mm. Yes, and it goes on to talk just a little bit. We don't have to read all of it, but, but about casting out the bondwoman and her son, which was all part of that Old Testament story. And so it describes two Jerusalems. Hagar corresponds to one of them. The other one is spiritual, is mother of us all, and that's who Sarah corresponds to. Oh, Corresponds, right there. Paul is at the So if you were going to communicate in code, wouldn't you tell somebody, "Hello"? I don't know if any of you have seen. I hope, I hope, 
I hope, good friends, that you have not wasted time watching that foolish movie, Three Amigos. But I think there is a very funny scene in there where someone's standing up on the wall, and the whole thing is he's supposed to give a coded message to the people down below the wall. And he goes, and he's supposed to sound like a bird, you know, because they're giving a secret message. They don't want the other people to hear them. So he goes, caw, caw, caw. And the person's just not responding. And so he starts going, look up here. Look up here! Look up here! And the guy just, no. Well, this is about that bald, isn't it? This corresponds to that. It's, it's like, look up here. It's incredible. <laughs> so I, I don't know where the, the literalism idea came in because they're saying these stories of Moses, the historical figures of Hagar and Sarah, stand for things that are spiritual. They say it's straight up in the text. It's amazing to me. Okay, let's look at Hebrews. Turn to the right. So we go through various different things, a bunch of things that begin with a T and so on. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Very, very professional Bible study. Okay, Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, this is worth reading at some length if we have some leisure. I think we do a little bit here. Okay, let's start here in Hebrews. This is a, an epistle. It's been historically attributed to Paul. Who knows who actually wrote it? But uh, here's what he said. And it's two people who knew the Old Testament very well. What do we read here? From the top? From the top. Let's do it from the top. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service sorry, ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. This is about Exodus. You'll see in the next verse that it's talking about the tabernacle, isn't it? For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Straight out of Moses, right? That's straight out of the books of Moses. Uh huh. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Yes, that's right which had the golden censer and the right. Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, ah, Aaron's yes. rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Mm. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Oh, now wait a second. In Isaiah chapter 4, we read the whole chapter, and it said something in verse 5 there that said something about over all the glory, there should be a what? A was, covering. There's going to be a covering. Oh, the mercy seat in the tabernacle is said here to be a something overshadowing. Was that the word? That's what this The mercy is. seat, mm -hmm. these cherubs of what? Of glory. Of glory. These cherubs of glory are, are covering the ark of the... Over all the glory, there'll be a covering... Okay, and what does it say there? Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I thought that was the kind of thing that Swedenborg originated too. I, you know, but it comes from Hebrews apparently. Okay, go on. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. That's right. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood. That's right. They were supposed to sprinkle blood. Mm -hmm. Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this. Oh, wait. And in the old King James language, it says the Holy Ghost, this signifying, another potent word. In other words, through that imagery of going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling blood, ah. that signifies something. What was your word? Indicating. Indicating. Go on. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. And what was that first tabernacle? Verse 9. Verse 9. Oh, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So wait a minute. Are you, dear author of the Hebrews, saying that, uh, and the old King James uses the language of, it was a figure for the time present. What was your language? It there was symbolic for it the present symbolic. time. It was symbolic. Wow. So the tabernacle was symbolic of a different non-tabernacle time? 
says Sambahu, that said correspond before. Using all this, all this kind of language, right? Just saying, look up here. You know, there's a code in here. I'm telling you, I'm sending a coded message. Wow, <laughs> amazing. Okay, sorry about that juxtaposition, but the uh, <laughs> you're not really sorry. Um, and then uh, it goes on to talk. And so you look at this. So Christ comes in verse 11. He's a high priest of these good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, right? Mm -hmm. By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then it talks about the blood of the bulls and the goats and the blood of Christ. So, you know, and so it goes through this whole thing. Uh, oh, look at verse 23. What does it say down there? Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Go on. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Yes, and the Old King James uses the word figures there again, figures of the true, right? but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Yes, so there's a lot more in that chapter, but this chapter all the way through is saying that the tabernacle, the high priest, the rituals, all prefigured Christ. It's something that Swedenborg says a lot. And they use language like symbolic or figure or things like that. And you see something similar in... Uh, Hebrews 11, we'll read fewer verses in here. Uh, let's read from verse 8. This is again about the Exodus story. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as Good as dead. In other words, he had no heirs, so the whole family line was going to die out with him. Were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Huh, they declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Go on. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Now, this is a little subtler here, but the gist of it, isn't it, that the seeking of the promised land, isn't that making that parallel to seeking an even better homeland, meaning heaven, that you're supposed to go to heaven? Isn't that the gist of that verse 16? A heavenly country? Uh, that's, that's what they're, they're seeking. Uh, they're, they're seeking this. Um, just one more scripture I want to read, which is actually back in 1 Corinthians. So let's flip back. If you get back to Romans, you've gone too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the last scripture I want to read tonight is, uh, oh, we've run long tonight. We've been short the last few weeks. Uh, let's just read verse 14 in the interest of time. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Wow, okay. So this is saying, so remember the Lord was talking about there's two groups of people. There's a group that can hear it and there's a group that can't. I'm communicating to both of them, but I use parables. And you see, 
interestingly, it's part, it, it may look like, oh, the Lord is just kind of disguising what he's saying in a parable. But if you really thought about it, uh, <coughs> he is communicating. This is how he can communicate with people who cannot understand spiritual things. They can understand things about goats and sheep and, and what have you know, the vineyard and, and kingdoms and heirs and things like that. So he's communicating with people in a language that they can understand. They may not get the deeper layer that's in there, but it doesn't mean it's not in there. As soon as the disciples ask, he said, sure, I'll tell you what's in there. And he's, we've got a very clear message that's in there. And a lot of it is about the word itself and how the word communicates, fascinatingly enough. And here's the New Testament repeatedly saying, the Old Testament has a layer of meaning inside it. The historical stuff, we focused on the historical. When Moses has a layer of meaning inside it, it is a parable. So when the New Testament says, without a parable spake he not unto them, I think it could possibly apply to the, entire, the entirety of Scripture. So why would you do that? Why would you communicate in that way? Well, number one, there's a protection. Over all the glory, there should be a covering. You notice when it talked about that mercy seat and where those angel guardians or the cherubim were over the Ten Commandments, uh, that is a very heavily protected space. High priest only goes in there once a year and has to atone in careful ways to go in there. In other words, it's protected. There are layers and layers in the tabernacle. And we were repeatedly told that the tabernacle was uh, some sort of a symbol of things that were to come and of heavenly things. Uh, so... The Old and New Testaments do plainly say, hey, there's a, there's, there's a code, there's a layer of meaning in here. It, there's something deeper within this than what meets the eye. Even historical figures like Hagar and Sarah have some kind of inner meaning. And so the Lord has, I, I'm surprised that there's so much emphasis in certain pockets of Christianity on biblical literalism when there's this abundant, you know, because those things explicitly say, hey, that historical stuff, if it didn't tell you it was allegorical, just take it straight. Hagar, Sarah, you know, they're just about the history of the people. But here's the New Testament saying, oh, no, that's allegorical. That whole thing is allegorical. And uh, so I think there's I'm just grateful to know about Swedenborg's interpretation because it really opens your eyes. And what we've done tonight, we've done entirely without, uh, you know, a direct quote from Swedenborg or whatever. You can, you can see it. It, it's, it says it. Paul says it. You know, Jesus says it. They say that this this material, even the historical material, the prophetical, it's not too hard to figure out. Oh, that has layers of meaning in it, the book of Revelation and so on. But even the histories contain that, and it's all about the Lord inwardly. And a uh, final thought that does come out of Swedenborg's works, I was reading today a passage, I just happened to bump into it for something completely different than I was working on. Swedenborg makes this bizarre statement that if the divine love and the divine truth, as they are, in themselves were to strike unfiltered directly hit even the highest angels in heaven it would kill them instantly even the heavens are layered and layered under atmospheres that protect them it's like going into outer space where those you know those those particles can rip right through your cells you know you, you they have these thick suits and everything uh, there's so much power in the Lord's love and wisdom uh, that it, just an unfiltered dose would kill even the most receptive people, you know, in the universe, uh, let alone us down here on earth struggling with Scripture. And so over all the glory, there needs to be a covering, layers and layers and layers. But thankfully, there are little tags that stick out that say, there's another layer here. Pull, pull this. You'll, you know, you'll be able to see. You'll be able to glimpse something about the other layer. And what lies behind these layers, if we're allowed to see in there, if we're ready to see behind there, is this incredible love of the Lord and His amazing wisdom to 
come and present this message of love, but to do it in a way that it just sounds like it's about some farmer and, or animal husbandry or, or, or something like that, with little hints here and there that it's got something deeper. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world and embodying the word being the word, fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies and speaking again in parables, just as the Old Testament spoke in parables. Yet your truth comes down through all those layers adapted to the highest heavens, the middle heavens, the lowest heavens, the world of spirits, and even down to we here on this earth, Lord, struggling to understand your word. Thank you for the accommodation. Thank you for the glimpses of your love and truth that come through now and then. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting. We'll understand it more and more.